Life can be so complicated. I mean, for the most part, every area of life seems to have its complicating factors. Family, work, school, church, politics, you name it. It feels like nothing is simple and settled. Complex questions face us no matter where we turn. And so in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, Rasul Berry is going to be leading Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day in some conversations about living in complex times. It just seems like for many of us, life is getting more complicated. And here's the thing, in complex times like these, it's helpful to remember that many of God's children that we see in the Bible found themselves in culturally complex times as well. Mm-hmm. And we're going to examine one of those people over the next several sessions. Her name is Esther. Mm-hmm. And her story is full of complex situations. And so join the group for some conversations about Esther and living in complex times in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And I think you're going to find this a helpful hour or so of conversations because I think we really feel the weight of trying to live out our faith in God in the culturally complex times in which we live. There's so many areas of life where it can be really hard to know how to best navigate the complicated situations that we find ourselves in. And so Rasul is going to take Elisa and Bill and Daniel to this complex but fascinating story of Esther in the Old Testament. And I think we'll find encouragement and perspective as we discover how God is with us and we can trust him even when we're a bit overwhelmed by the fact that our lives are so complicated as we travel through these complex times that we live in. So pull your chair up to the table with the group and let's get started. Rasul? Have you ever thought about how complex life can get? That thought has come to me when I moved from Indiana to New York City a few years ago. (laughs) So just to give you a image of one way in which things got complicated, the Brooklyn block that I lived on, like most of them, have what we call alternate side street parking. So what that means is that a couple days a week, Tuesday and Friday, one side of the block has to be completely cleared of cars so that the street cleaning can come by. So that means you got to figure out somewhere else to park, you know, between the hours of 930 and 11. The challenge is the other side of the street has two different days. So if the one <laughs> side is Tuesday and Friday, the other side is Monday and Thursday. And suddenly life got complicated of just trying to figure out how to park and, you know, and where to move and when. So someday you would see a, a parking spot and you go, oh, yes, I got a spot near my house. And then you park. <laughs> and then I'd realize when I got out the car that, oh, I have to move this at 8 a.m. in the morning. And so that was why the spot was open. It got so complicated. I literally just decided, let's just not have a car. Like, you know, <laughs> which then created another complication of how do I then do grocery shopping and things like that. So life getting complicated. What are some ways you've experienced life become 
more complex. Oh, I just remember moving from being a, a married couple to having kids. And suddenly you have all this paraphernalia, you know, to schlep with you everywhere and schedules. I remember just when one of my kids said they wanted to do a sport, I thought my head was going to like blow up because <laughs> I thought I can't fit one more thing in. And, you know, now I'm a grandma and it's like, my answer is always sure, you know, because I can do it. But that first immersion into parenting, ugh, I hardly could cope. Yeah. For me, I think of budgeting. And when I started to have an income as a young adult and realizing that the amount of money I had coming in in this first paycheck was not enough to cover everything that I would need to buy or pay for in the month. And so having to figure out, okay, how much of this paycheck can I use for food? How much of the next paycheck do I use for food? How much of this paycheck do I use for this? And then you have to think of dates of different bills and you try really hard to get them all on one day, but that never works fully. And then you have something like trash service that comes in and they're like, we're only going to bill you once a quarter and stuff like that. So I, that was difficult. Yeah, that's interesting, Daniel, because when you get to my age, you'll find that there are all kinds of layers of complexity in trying to sign up for Medicare. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I mean, it's like you're going into the lion's den. It's just such a crazy mixed up process that doesn't seem to have a roadmap attached Mm -hmm. to it. (laughs) Yeah, it just seems like for many of us, uh, life is getting more complicated. I think about how just during the pandemic, many of us had to start working from home. What does work-life balance look like when literally you're Mm -hmm. working, you know, in your living room? And let's not even talking about the new technology that comes out like mm-hmm. every week and that you have to figure oh, out. And here's the thing. In complex times like these, it's helpful to remember that we're not alone. And not only is God still present, but many of God's children that we see in the Bible found themselves in culturally complex times as well. Mm-hmm. And we're going to examine one of those people over the next several sessions. Her name is Esther. Mm-hmm. And her story is full of complex situations. Mm-hmm. So by exploring Esther's story, we're going to gain some insight into how to navigate our own complex situations. Before we jump into chapter two, I'm just curious about what's a few things that we know about Esther? Well, she had two names. Her other name was Hadassah. All right. One was a Persian name and the other was a Jewish name. Yep. And this takes place in Persia. And this is after Persia has conquered Babylon, right? Mm -hmm. And some Jews, even though they were freed from exile, but they chose to stay. They chose to remain. And so that's really the context of Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle and Esther. Scripture tells us that Mordecai was her uncle who pretty much took care of her and raised her because her parents had died. Mm -hmm. Right. Then in addition to those things, there's this other unique thing about the book of Esther where it's the only book in the Bible where God's name is not explicitly mentioned. Mm -hmm. And we're going to unpack a little bit about how that is significant in light of the complexity that we see her dealing with. But let's turn to Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then verse 15. So we'll, you know, just kind of go around. Bill, could you get us started? Sure. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. 
Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided for her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So we kind of start in the middle of the story, right? It says the king mm-hmm. is angry about something. What is he angry about? Well, the way it's stated, it sounds like he's angry about something Vashti mm-hmm. had done. Who was the current queen, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, if we go to chapter one, we see that there was this big party that uh, the king had thrown and he had summoned Vashti to come before his guests so that they could admire her beauty. She refused and uh, and then he would just basically banish her as a result. You know, Rasul... Um, It might seem to us like he's kind of making a mountain out of a molehill on this, but one of the things we've talked about a lot on the program in various conversations is the ancient Near East, much like much of Eastern culture today, is rooted in shame and honor. And for the king's wife to refuse to do what he said at that time would have brought tremendous shame to him. And that's probably what, at least in part, triggered such an extreme response is to banish her just because she wouldn't show up at his party. Right. So that's what the king is dealing with. And then we look at Esther and what were some of the things that made her life complex at the time? Well, she's Jewish Mm -hmm. and um, nobody really knows it. She hasn't revealed it. Mordecai forbid her to reveal it too. Mm -hmm. So she's living kind of in disguise. Yeah. That's one aspect. Yep. Yep. She's beautiful is how the story presents her. She's a virgin, so she's not married yet. And in a patriarchal culture like this, that would have been really important for her to be cared for. So that's another layer of complication. 
And then Mordecai makes it clear that she needs to hide part of who she is, which is her national identity. So she goes into this whole situation protective of who she really is. And she honors what seems like, I guess, a protective instinct that Mordecai has uh, for her by not sharing that part of her. I mean, there's so much complexity involved in this situation with, you know, in light of, you know, her losses personally. But then people kind of describe this as a, a as a beauty pageant. But there's a big difference between yeah. what we normally think of about a Miss America pageant and what's going on here. The biggest difference is the women had no choice. They were summoned, rounded up and brought to the king and not just, you know, looked at, but also you know, expected to spend a night with him. And so um, the complexity of how do I navigate that entire, you know, process where I don't have choice or agency and in the midst of that still keep my sense of dignity intact. I mean, it's it's a really complex scenario. And yet in verse 15, we see something that reveals, and again, a glimmer of, of some of what is still possible in the midst of this challenging situation. I'll just go ahead and read it. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge in the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And uh, that word favor there is the Hebrew word hesed. And what do we know about the significance of chesed in the Old Testament? Well, it's one of the words for love in the Old Testament, and it typically describes God's love. Uh, It shows up when God reveals himself to Moses, and he says that I am this God of loyal love or faithful love. And that word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with Israel, which is a self-sacrificial love, a love that sticks a love that uh, is faithful regardless of circumstances. And Rasul, I'm really hit by the fact that we talked about how God's name is not ever mentioned. You know, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet here, Hesed is his character, is his being. And, you know, if if we listen, we hear God, even in this story. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that to myself and I ask, well, what has been a challenging or difficult circumstance that I've had to overcome? And I think about my own past, which I can relate to with Esther. Uh, My father was killed when I was seven years old, and it really left a void in my own life about what it meant to be a man or a husband or a father. But after placing my faith in Christ and began to understand and embrace God as a heavenly father, it gave me something that I was missing that entire time, Mm -hmm. which was this sense of like, even though I didn't have this physical person to look at, I did have people that God had brought in my path, and I did have ultimately God himself that he could reveal his heart to me. And then when I did become a father myself, it helped me to understand that that sense of longing that I had made me super present for my own daughter Mm -hmm. and making sure that I would be there. And so Esther's story just reminds me of how even when we go through complexity and trials and times that there are clear senses, glimmers that we can get of God's hesed, of his presence with us, even if we don't really see it up close and personal. And as we continue to go through her story, we're going to just continue to see that unfold. But I just would like to pray for anybody that can relate to that situation as we close and just kind of be a reminder of God's presence with us. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. We thank you that you reveal yourself in your compassionate, faithful love that endures throughout all generations. We ask that you would uh, remind us of that today when it feels like we might be alone, might be abandoned or abused. And Lord, allow Esther's story and the story of what you've done through all your children remind us of your faithfulness, that you are present even if no one else is saying your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Rasul. That sets us up well for what we'll be studying together in this episode, and it is our prayer that Esther's story will encourage you in your faith as we explore it together. Well, have you ever been between a rock and a hard place, (laughs) on the horns of a dilemma, had to choose the lesser of two evils? Well, that's where we find Esther as we continue to work our way through her story in this next segment. As we're discovering, we think we live in complex times. Well, Esther was there. And so let's join Rasul and Elisa and Bill and Daniel and continue this study living in complex times. Have you ever heard the expression, no pain, no gain? (laughs) Yep. I haven't heard it as much as I've seen it on (laughs) T-shirts and especially seen it on T-shirts at a training camp for sports. Yeah. When has that become more than just a saying, but an actual experience? Not just the experience of the pain, but also in a recognition or a realization that there was a gain that was on the other side of it. Yeah. You know, I think all of life has that um, reality played out. I mean, I'm thinking about training my dog. <laughs> you know, there's such discipline. You, I have to remember to take treats with me when I take him for a walk. What a hassle, you know. And I have to pay attention to everything he's doing, watch for him to do a reactive response and, you know, reinforce appropriate behavior and it, stay on top of it. And it's a lot of work mm-hmm. where I just want to go for a walk with my dog. But, you know, mm-hmm. if I want him to be trained and well-behaved, then I need to go through the pain. I definitely have uh, experienced that as well. And I also think of just in relationships, if they're really going to become a deep life-giving relationship, you go through a lot of pain of Mm -hmm. these are two different people or multiple different people that are learning to get along and care for each other and care for each other in ways that the other person needs to be cared for and not just how I would typically care. And anyway, so I could go on on that for a long time. There's a lot of pain in relationships, but when you dig in, there can be a lot of fruit on the other side of that. Yeah, I think about learning something new, whether that's an instrument or a language. Uh, when I studied abroad in Cameroon, I mean, I just remembered it was physically painful. It got, I started to get headaches trying to strain <laughs> to understand what other people were saying in, in the language that I was just immersed in. And it was frustrating after a while. But man, when it finally kind of broke through and I was able to have that sense of communication, especially for someone like me as an extrovert, that was huge. <laughs> And when we are in the midst of pain, we often don't feel a purpose. It just feels like agony, right? Like even if it's, you know, and that's why they put those T-shirts on, you know, no pain, no gain to remind people that, hey, this is going to have a purpose, a gain that's coming. And I think that's another place where uh, Esther, the book of Esther helps us. In Esther chapter four, we see how her experiences and challenges prepare her for the moment that she was made for, Mm. a purpose in the pain. So 
we're just going to go ahead and take turns reading the chapter. Who'd like to get us going? I'll start. So Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, and this is about killing all the Jews, right? Yep. There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spare their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Man, I know that's a lot of verses, but you just can see the pace of the story and all the different dynamics. Let's start from the beginning. What is Mordecai tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes about? And what is that all about? Well, he's experiencing preemptive grief in advance because of the king's edict to annihilate, to exterminate the Jewish people in the kingdom. And again, Haman is the adversary who has triggered this from the king. And Mordecai's terrified as to what's going to happen. And Mordecai is in some ways to blame, right? Mm. Because everyone else is Mm -hmm. bowing down and giving honor to this new leader, Haman. And Mordecai has refused to do that. Right. I wonder, Rasul, um, you keep hearing these requests, fast for me, fast for me, fast for me, but at no point does it say pray for me. Hmm. Is that understood in the fasting, or does that speak to the spiritual condition of the Jewish people at that time? Well, that question really is something that has also beguiled commentators 
and people have come on different sides of the spectrum in terms of answering why is it is especially once again with Esther being a book where God's name isn't mentioned mm. is there some relationship with just almost like a secularization of the language and the concepts I tend to think that when you, every time you look at uh, the issue of fasting in the scripture you see it related to repentance and so I believe that it's built in that expectation of fasting would come with a orientation of a sense of really crying out to God. But stylistically, for some reason, the author is emphasizing the fast component as de-emphasizing or explicitly kind of the prayer component. I think that might have something to do with the fact of mm. the overall theme of, okay, even when this spiritual act of vitality is happening, it doesn't feel like things are, you know, as they should be. And I think that that's, yeah. that's where I find comfort in this because we feel like that sometimes. I'm praying, mm -hmm. I'm fasting. Why doesn't it seem like things are moving? Yeah. So what's Esther's challenge and her dilemma, right? Because that's where really we see the crux of the conflict in the chapter emerge. You know, all the concubines, if you will, you know, would go in at set times and she had to be summoned in order for the king to permit her into his presence. And yet she struggles with, well, it has been 30 days. It's nearly my turn is kind of the implication I'm hearing in that. But still, she has to decide what to do. Plus, she has to reveal herself as being Jewish. And that's like a big deal. Mm -hmm. But she's asking for her life as well as she's asking for everybody else's lives. People talk about in life how sometimes we're left with two really bad options. <laughs> yeah. And in her situation, her two options are take a risk of dying now and approaching the king and revealing that she's a Jew, or take a risk of dying later when this edict becomes law and happens and all of the Jews are killed. So talk about two terrible right. decisions mm -hmm. that she has to decide between. Yeah, and the fascinating thing is how Mordecai challenges her sense of who she is and her sense of purpose to get her out of that logjam by saying, who knows, yeah. maybe you have been put in this position for such a time as this. And that challenge that question, that statement seems to trigger in her something where she begins to embrace it. And what does that embracing for her look like? She starts giving instructions. She takes a leadership role. For the mm -hmm. first time in the entire book, yeah. you start to see her say, okay, this is what I need you to do. Instructed Mordecai and the people to do this. But the other part of that is it reflected in a sacrificial posture where she said, you know what, if I perish, I perish. That's how, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do this. And so living with purpose permits us to persevere through pain. We've had big challenges and obstacles in our lives. Sometimes that sense of even the danger involved. And that's where believing Romans 8.28 is so important, right? That we know that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that good is also defined by God's purpose, not necessarily the comfort that we might want. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Esther really saw and revealed and embraced. And that's what gives me hope for us to be able to find a sense of purpose. There's a Christian rapper named The Truth who uh, said this before in a song called Every Day that I think is related. He says, I hear you saying, I know I got a purpose. I just don't know what it is. Let me help you uncover it. I'll tell you what I did. I followed my bents. Where do you like to go? What do you like to do? That should give you a clue. What do you do well? What are some of your strengths? What do you like to discuss that probably give you a hint? 
tell me what drives you up a wall because your greatest frustration is a problem you were put here to solve. Hmm. And sometimes the thing that is the greatest sense of pressure on us is the exact problem that we were put here to solve. Wow, that's a good word. And I hope you'll think about that. Maybe the thing that causes you the greatest frustration is the problem you were put here to solve. Another way of saying probably the most familiar line from Esther that God puts you where he puts you for just such a time as this. Well, would you call yourself an influencer? Even if you don't have tons of followers on social media, you may have more impact in the lives of people around you than you realize. And so they're going to talk about what we can learn about the power of influence from the characters in the book of Esther. It's the tale of two kinds of influence coming up after this short break. Before we get back to the study of Esther, I'd like to encourage you to go online to our website and sign up to receive the daily video devotionals from Our Daily Bread. These quick videos, usually right around three minutes or so in length, provide a daily dose of inspiration delivered to your email inbox first thing every morning. Elisa and Bill and Daniel and Rasul, they all do these from time to time. And there's a really good group of presenters that you'll enjoy hearing from. In fact, every once in a while, a surprise guest that you may recognize from somewhere else will show up. It just takes a moment for you to sign up, and then we'll send you a daily video reminder of God's love right to your email inbox every morning, seven days a week. Go to discovertheword.org or Google Our Daily Bread devotional videos and then sign up to start receiving them. And now back to the story of Esther and living in complex times and the tale of two different kinds of influence. What are some ways that you exert influence over those around you? I'll use a light one. So I'm a huge sports fan. And even though my wife has no interest in sports and watching things with me, she has absorbed knowing the storylines that matter to me (laughs) just because I talk about them so much. So that's one way that, you know, whether for good or for bad, but on the flip side, she's influenced me as well. She went to esthetician school to get her license and she had like one more eyebrow waxing that she needed to complete her course. And so she turns to me and this was my, yeah. And I got (laughs) waxed and now I know the pain and I've been influenced of that process of what it takes. But in any case, influence. So how are some ways that you have exerted influence of those around you? You know, I've spent a lot of years talking about leadership as influence. But when I brought it down really close to home, I, I always think of an example where I walked past my, I don't know, three and a half, four-year-old daughter's room during nap time. And she had all of her stuffed animals lined up. She's supposed to be sleeping, but lined up. And she's just pacing back and forth in front of them going, and I told you that you cannot have any more TV, you know, with her little pointy finger going. And I thought, well, hmm, wonder where mm. she learned that. <laughs> For me, I kind of relate to what you said, Russell. My wife is not particularly interested in sports, and I torment her with it all the time. And so recently I was watching a Liverpool football club match from England, and she plopped down in the chair next to me and started watching with me. And she was actually even complaining about the same refereeing decisions that were bothering me. (laughs) And I thought, okay, she really has been paying attention here. Yeah, the reality is that we are all influenced by people 
and we all influence others. Absolutely. But the trick is that when life is complex, sometimes those influences are subtle or hard to see. Mm -hmm. But we see this vividly in Esther chapter five. It's a tale of two types of influence. Esther on the one hand and Haman on the other. One trying to save her people, the other seeking to destroy and wipe them out. So we're just going to look at a few verses here. So just maybe two people uh, can read one verses one through three, the other uh, three through six. I can start. Esther 5 verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. We need to insert a big here, (laughs) right? (laughs) Okay, so she didn't get killed because, as we said in a previous conversation, she could have been killed for approaching the king without him summoning her. Okay, verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. You see that finding favor situation Mm -hmm. again, where once again she finds favor in a situation where, as Elisa said, she really needed it. Oh, yeah. She literally was putting her life in her hands. And Mm -hmm. sometimes people don't realize the connection between what had just happened at the beginning of the book, where we see the king's ire toward his own queen, who he banishes. Mm -hmm. In the second chapter, we see a assassination attempt against his life. And so there's really a sense of palace intrigue and turmoil that is the source of this very rule that is put there. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know. Haman may have found out about her Jewish ancestry and already told the king. There's a whole lot of different outcomes that could have been there other than this sense of grace and favor that she receives. And what is Esther's motivation for using her influence? All we see here is an invitation to dinner. Which is a pretty good way to a man's heart in some ways, right? Or a woman's heart, either way, right? <laughs> right, especially this man in particular, because we yeah. also know he just threw a party in the chapter yeah, he one likes for banquets. 180 <laughs> days, half the year, right? Yeah, he really yeah. likes banquets. Yeah, I think as she exercises her influence, we have to guess at her motivation because the scriptures don't specifically state it. But it seems pretty clear that she's responding to the threat against her people and trying to create an environment in which she can advocate for the mm-hmm. Jewish nation. And Mordecai had just, in our previous conversation, we talked about this, he had just really challenged her. I mean, you're going to die in the end, or <laughs> you might die earlier, but you could also turn the events right. you know, for such a time as this. And when you look at those two options, you want to use your influence. Yeah. Well, she did. She chose to. All right. So like I said, this is a tale of two different types of influence. So we see Esther, who has put her life on a line to intercede for her people on their behalf. The next half of the passage, uh, chapter five, shows the other person in the story. Daniel, could you start reading uh, from verse eight? Yeah, sure. 
Essa replied, My petition and my request is this, if the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Now, my translation said gallows, Hmm. uh, which may be a westernization of what was actually to be done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as we look at Haman, what motivates his use of influence? Rage. Yeah. And narcissism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of see it's all about him. Yeah, and I'm just imagining in this context that he wants to make an example of this is what happens when you don't honor me, Haman. Uh, and so he wants everyone to see Mordecai impaled on this pole. Yeah, one of the things that is particularly shocking, and in some ways Mordecai is influencing Haman here. Haman goes through this list of his accomplishments, his wealth, his sons, his, you know, uh, promotion. And he says, but none of it means anything. I don't have his satisfaction. Let's unpack that for a second. That's a pretty yeah. significant statement. <laughs> yeah. To have everything in a sense and it not be enough, I think makes Haman kind of representative of the human condition. Mm -hmm. We use the concept that's called entitlement. You know, we slip into that about, I deserve this, or I can have this, and just because I can, I will. Yeah. And how easy it is, too, to let other people impact the way that we see the world or see ourselves Mm -hmm. or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, he should have been able to look at all the stuff that he has or whatever. And he's like, who cares what Mordecai thinks? I've got the influence. I've got the power. I can, you know, do what I want. But he does care a lot about what Mordecai thinks. And I think that's where, unfortunately, I see myself in this story relating to Haman is as someone that sometimes when I run into the wrong person on a day that's going great, all of a sudden my day isn't going well anymore. And it sounds so petty in that way. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Daniel, because, you know, oftentimes we can see ourselves and just think we're the Esther in the story and and not the Haman. And so how can we be like Haman in some ways? I think just judging other people, you know, making snap judgments as we look at people and their decisions and thinking that, oh, I would never make that choice or a bent to be right all the time. You know, that I'm the only one who really understands what the right position is here. I can see a lot of those things in me and in others. And I think uh, when we see people having what we want, 
or what we think we deserve, that's where it can really get in the way. Yeah. The one thing Haman thinks he needs to truly be happy and fulfilled is for Mordecai to bow before him. But what you get from the story is the very real sense that if one day Mordecai were to bow before him, he'd find something else to be dissatisfied about because good, yeah, there's this yeah. hole in the middle of his heart that uh, he's trying to fill with the wrong stuff. I definitely see that. I also see in Haman, he is at the center of his story the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's about his promotion, not about how he can serve the king. Mm-hmm. At the banquet, it's all about him and the new influence that he has and how special he is because he's at this banquet. It's not about what Esther's going to ask for or about what the king wants. All of these pieces of the story, our introduction to Haman, is that he's the center of his life and his story, and that's what he thinks about as himself. And again, is another unmasking of me in the story, right? Is how often I Mm. look at the world and Mm. relationships with others and jobs and all those things is where am I in this? How do I fit in? What, what is my influence that I want? And that's how I can relate to Haman in this story too. And the writer says many times that Haman was in charge. Haman was given responsibility. Haman was in, in power. We've alluded to this, but when we've been put in a place of power, it's not for ourselves. It is to care for the others. And that's what Jesus demonstrates, you know, in the upper room when he takes up a towel and a basin and washes his disciples' feet because all authority has been given to him. So what a contrast this is. Yeah. And I totally can relate to that, keeping up with the Joneses or comparing yourself, right? You Mm -hmm. feel pretty good about yourself. And then you see something on social media where somebody else has, you know, done something that has more attention and how do you feel about that and that's where the answer for me goes back to philippians uh, chapter 2 verse 3 through 9 and this is where we see how the apostle paul points us to influence and i'll just read it it says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And it's so interesting, the contrast between Haman and, you know, his desire to kill Mordecai in front of everyone and Jesus who picks up his cross and is taken out of the city and actually voluntarily sacrifices himself for others. And Paul says, that's the model to follow, have that mindset being you so that instead of selfish ambition, We, in humility, count others ahead of ourselves. And that's how we should use our influence. So I've been thinking a lot about heroes recently. Who was a hero that you admired growing up, especially for the way they protected the little guy? I remember watching on Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, Davy Crockett, the King of the Wild Frontier. And there was one episode when he was at home in Tennessee, and there was a guy who had been run off of his land by a bunch of bullies. 
And Davy Crockett went and got his land back for him. And I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) Now you're making me think of Lassie rescuing Timmy (laughs) from a well. (laughs) And understanding complex instructions in order to do that. So As a dog. As a dog, yes. (laughs) I actually think about Mother Teresa and her passion for the poor. Yeah. When I think of heroes, man, I, I always start with Superman. I think that's typically the first one that comes to mind. But then I also think of people in my life who have been heroes, either to me or to people around me. And yeah, even animals, to Elisa's point about Lassie. <laughs> so. Wow, yeah, you really did the whole gamut there between fiction, nonfiction, and also on the hero front, definitely Spider-Man. I just remembered mm-hmm. Uncle Ben's statement, you know, with great power comes great responsibility oh, yeah. and his commitment to do that. Why do you think we have such a fascination with heroes? I think we've all run into those moments in our life where we run out of ability or resources or whatever, and we mm. know that we need rescue. And mm-hmm. so I think there's something that resonates within us when we see heroes as, man, we need those types of people in our lives. And it's so interesting you bring it up that way, Daniel, because typically we think about needing rescue from the dramatic, you know, being stuck in a well or stuck in a cave or in a fire or whatever. But maybe we externalize it because it's too scary to look at the reality that we need to be rescued just from ourselves, just from how we think and what we feel and what we own, who we choose to be. But yeah, I think there is an innate desire to be rescued. Yeah especially when we live in a complex and often vulnerable world. There are so many things around us from which we need to be rescued. And a hero is simply just an advocate, right? Um, An advocate is defined as someone who works for the cause of another person and pleads their case. And we see in Esther herself a powerful advocate for her people. And I think it's a really incredible story in Esther chapter 7 that we can find some inspiration about the importance and the nature of advocacy. So uh, we're just going to read the first seven verses. Who'd like to get us going? I'll start. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then the queen answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Okay, so we have just kind of picked up on the second part of the story. We had a previous conversation where Esther chose to intercede for her people by having this dinner. And then at the dinner, 
she initially said, well, come to another dinner so I can make the case to you. And now she finally reveals, you know, what her case and what her appeal is. What's the significance of this moment? And even what are the risks that she poses in, in putting this advocacy out there? Well, it's revealing her national mm-hmm. and ethnic identity. And uh, just as easily as the king, who we saw in an earlier conversation, was known for his anger management issues, just as easily as he turned on Haman, he could have turned on her. Mm-hmm. He did that with Vashti at the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And what level of influence does Haman really have with the king? We know he's been given this promotion. So he has some pretty high level of influence with the king. So the question is, is the king going to protect his potential right-hand guy, Haman, or is he going to believe his wife and protect her? And the only clue we might have is something we landed on in another conversation is that Esther had been given favor. Mm-hmm. She'd been giving this loving, protective care. And you wonder if maybe that's at work here mm. in his decision. Do you notice anything interesting about how she frames the request? to save her people. She begins by asking him to save her life. And since she has found favor with him, mm-hmm. once he agrees to save her life, then the logical extension of that is to save her people as well. Yeah, at first, you know, we might find that selfish, but it it maybe is very strategic because mm-hmm. he's attached to her and she has been given favor. Yeah, but then it kind of gets weird because she says, now if we were just sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything because I wouldn't have wanted to bother you with that. Yeah. But because it has to do with rescuing our lives, saving our lives, I thought that was important enough to talk with you about. It's fascinating because they actually are pretty much already slaves, right? I mean, we've talked about that. Um, She already was, you might call her a sex slave for him. So is this window dressing? Is this political, you know, dancing Mm -hmm. about? um, What do you think? Yeah, I definitely see a nature of the strategy involved. And you can't just take that one statement out of its context of the entire approach, right? She goes before the king and she doesn't just spring the request right there in the court. She says, hey, if it pleases the king, would you, you know, I have a banquet prepared for you, which a banquet which she already had prepared. So you see the strategy unfolding. Then she gets them to the banquet and her request come to another banquet tomorrow and then I'll let you know. Then this is that second day, and this is when she unfolds. So we're seeing a, a very savvy queen mm-hmm. navigating through the dynamics because what she's basically asking this king to do is basically pick her over his right-hand man who he had just elevated and promoted. As an aside here, we spend a lot of time um, immersed in the patriarchal culture of the Old Testament, and we can allow that to color us in terms of God's ways. And yet there is a way in which the women of the Old Testament, as they are given favor by God to have a brilliance in using their influence. And I hope we don't miss that. That's good, Elisa. I think it's ironic, too, that um, she had asked the Jewish people throughout the nation to fast for three days. And while they're fasting, she's preparing a feast Mm -hmm. for the king. So uh, there are a lot of extreme opposites in this story. That's good. And this is another one, fasting and feasting Mm. at the crux of the problem. Yeah. And of course, we also see the contrast in the very banquet that Haman was bragging about 
being able to have this mm-hmm. unique opportunity mm-hmm. to partake of is his presence <laughs> actually assures his demise. And all of this comes across through her decision to advocate and that particular way of saying that their problem is my problem. Yeah. And of course, mm-hmm. on the one level, that was true, but it was only true because she chose for it to be true. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of uh, what we see in the New Testament. In 1 John 2, 1, the writer John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What are some parallels that you could see in terms of Jesus' sense of being an advocate? Well, he totally identified with us simply by becoming human in discussing how Esther identified herself with the problem of her people. Jesus identified himself with our problem by coming in human flesh and living in this broken world. Yeah. And then as amazing as Esther is for being willing to lay down her life to rescue her people, Jesus does it. Mm. Um, He actually lays down his life. And so if we have kind of this similar setting of in the same way that Queen Esther is before the king advocating, we have Jesus advocating for the father. It's like Jesus is saying, not just save my life. He's saying, look, I laid down my life so that Mm -hmm. these people that I'm advocating for can have life with you. Yeah, this sense of advocacy runs deep and is also something that God calls us to participate in. In James 127, we read, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In what ways does God call us to be advocates? Mm -hmm. I just think about a dear friend of mine who God has blessed, I guess I would say it's him, with tons of wealth, she and her husband. And they, you know, when I asked her directly about it, she loves God so much. She says, I'm just a catalyst. You know, I'm a conduit. And that's truly the way she views it. So when I think about James saying, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. I mean, Esther could have said, you know, I'm enjoying my life in the palace. I've got it pretty good. But Mordecai goes to her and says, you could understand that you've been given this opportunity, this sovereign complex situation to use your influence for good. And she does. So she advocates. Yeah. And the scary thing with both the story of Esther and the story of Jesus as examples of advocacy is what are we actually willing to give up to be advocates? Because Mm -hmm. the model that Esther and Jesus give is being willing to even lay down our lives for those who are in distress and most vulnerable. And that's a lot to think about. Yeah, absolutely. The reality is that Because we live in a broken and fallen world, a complex world in which oftentimes the vulnerable suffer, uh, to be an advocate, to take up the cause of someone else, especially for those who can't take up that cause themselves like Esther did, often does cost something. But that cost ultimately puts us in a position where we can be heroes and be the type of people that those can look to and see a glimmer even just a small glimmer of what Jesus is doing and has done for us as the chief advocate. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Rasul Berry, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. 
And we're studying the book of Esther together in this episode. And in just a moment, they'll wrap up this conversation with an encouraging observation about the surprise ending of the book of Esther and the unexpected celebration to remember how God so often turns sorrow into joy. But first, let's take a moment to preview what you'll be studying with the group in the next Discover the Word podcast. On the next Discover the Word podcast, be part of a fascinating conversation with Dr. Ryan Clevenger. Ryan's an expert in the area of patristics. And what is patristics? Well, patristics is the study of those early Christian writers after the New Testament to about the year six or 700 who had a lasting influence on the theology of the church. And can you throw out a name or two? Because some of us probably know someone who is categorized as a patristic, yes. but we don't realize that's what they're categorized as, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, for many people in the West, Augustine okay. or Augustine, depending on mm-hmm. uh, where you're from, <laughs> is probably the most famous. But there are many others, Origen, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius is another pretty mm-hmm. well-known one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, they share a lot of the same cultural context yeah. of yeah. the New Testament. And so there is that similarity, but it's also, for me, good because in many ways it's so different from my own culture. Mm-hmm. And so it forces me to question, why did I assume the text meant something? When this person is seeing it in a completely yeah, different way. That's and so it makes me challenge my own assumptions okay. and makes me dig in closer to the text. And so join the group next time as Ryan Clevenger shows us how some of those early church writers can help us understand an important idea in the Bible, that of testing. An insightful conversation that you don't want to miss on our next Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of this study about Esther and living in complex times. Have you ever experienced sorrow turning into gladness? Let me tell you what I mean. In New York City, finding an apartment is a lot like trying to look for a house in a hot buyer's market, right? Like you need a realtor and everything. And the first apartment my wife Tamika and I applied for here we got rejected and it was shocking because we were like, wait, we can you know, afford this. What's going on? But it also made us super nervous because it was like, OK, is this going to be our experience moving forward? Are we going to be able to find a place? And to clarify, do you rent or buy an apartment in New York? You rent. But okay. the, so all this to rent. All this to rent. Okay. Well, we ended up getting approved for a much better apartment a couple weeks later. And now we rejoice that we didn't get the first one. (laughs) Oh, I relate. We had a very similar situation. We just um, really had our hearts set on this particular home that was being built and it was affordable and all of that and put it in offer and it was rejected. And about a month later, the salespeople called and said another contract had fallen through on another one that was better, just like you're saying. And we lived there 20 years and... It was amazing. Yeah. Your heart's broken. Yes. And then your heart's joyful. Broken. We were fearful. And now, like five years later, we're like, whew, we dodged a bullet. (laughs) So anybody else can relate to that. (laughs) 
Well, I'll go with uh, something different uh, than a housing thing, although I could do one of those too. But when our first child was born, there was some trauma that occurred to him during the, the birthing experience. And uh, even though he was like nine pounds, eight and a half ounces, he was immediately wheeled to the NICU. And they told me that he had a condition that he could die that night and there was nothing they could do to prevent it. Either he was going to die or he was going to live. And they sent me home and the next morning I got up and I called the NICU and they said, you know, uh, in the middle of the night, he just kicked this thing and he's going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. And um, that is my sorrow to celebration kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm. The one that's coming to mind for me is where sorrow and celebration I don't know that they'll ever be fully separated. And I'm thinking of my nephew who's been going through chemo treatments and who had a brain tumor. He's eight years old. And when they found out that he had a tumor, they found out because he was emergency airlifted to a children's hospital for emergency brain surgery. And so we thought we were going to lose him that night. And yet he came through and he's in treatments right now. And so there was this moment of intense sorrow and then a moment of celebration, but that celebration was still tempered with the very real reality that there's a lot more to go. Yeah, so it's like intertwined. And that kind of really reflects the complexity of life that sometimes it can seem that sorrow lasts forever, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there is often a celebration later that puts that original situation into a different context. And we see that in our last discussion into Esther, we see sorrow literally turn into celebration. And in our complex times, it's helpful to remember that though God seems to be silent in the sorrow, he's still speaking and working things out to a greater celebration. So we're going to look at Esther chapter nine, verses 20 through 28. And I'll just get us going reading the first couple verses. Um, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. And they were to celebrate this as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and their destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure, because of everything written in the letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who had joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. 
And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. You know, one of the times I went to Israel, we were there during the Feast of Purim. And uh, on one of the days of the Feast of Purim, we were entering the old city of Jerusalem to go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. And there are all these school groups who are congregated in the large plaza there overlooking the Wailing Wall. And they were all dressed in costumes of the different characters. And I remember seeing this one kid, and he had a yarmulke on his head, and he had his ringlets and stuff starting to come in. And he was dressed all in black, and out of the, the back of his black suit coat was a gallow with a rope. And he was Haman. His character for Purim was was Haman. And you saw all these kids just running around in that plaza dressed as characters in the story of Esther. So that last statement about that it should never be forgotten, they're pretty well keeping that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was the original cause of the Jews' sorrow that got turned into joy? The threat. Of killing all the Jews and uh, the, really their extermination. And then Esther advocates to the king and she's given her request and the Jews are preserved. Mm-hmm. Do you see the emphasis of the writer that this, and some would say even maybe the main point you know, of the book of Esther in terms of from the writer's standpoint was to explain and to establish the celebration mm-hmm. that they were delivered. And free, but so yeah. you see that emphasis at the end. Remembered, observed, every city, every promise yeah. for all time. And I mean, what does that say about the nature of how God turns sorrow into joy? I think about the Passover, you know, and, and how the freedom of the Exodus that came to the Jewish people, and they celebrate the Passover today. And you know, ongoingly, mm-hmm. we are told to remember what God has done, and in mm-hmm. that process of remembering, something very, very sad, devastatingly sad, becomes something meaningful and joyful as we look at God's character and His deliverance. Yeah, the same thing happens every year at Hanukkah, Mm -hmm. which is celebrated every year uh, by the Jewish people in December, where they remember the time when Antiochus Epiphanes plundered Israel and defiled and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, and the Maccabeans, Judas the Hammer Maccabees, I love that name, Um, (laughs) they rose up in revolt against uh, Antiochus and um, drove them out and restored the temple. And uh, the celebration of the restoration of light in the temple is what's celebrated every year in the lighting of the candles of Hanukkah. Yeah, and there's something so helpful about celebrating and having a rhythm of remembering Mm -hmm. the past Mm -hmm. and what God's done, especially because when these celebrations come up, whether it's in Jewish history or in our own lives, we're not always in a place where we want to celebrate, but by forcing it at times, it actually reminds us that God has been faithful in the past Mm -hmm. and gives us a a fresh renewed hope that even when I'm, I'm just remembering right now because I don't feel it. Mm -hmm. Even in those moments, there's this hope that kind of begins to penetrate in our hearts and remind Mm -hmm. us that the same God that was faithful in the past will be present today and faithful today and faithful in the future. Yeah. In our own lives, how have you seen that value 
of remembering of when sorrow was turned into celebration. I've shared this story before, but as we waited for years, like four and a half years to adopt children, uh, one Christmas, I was so fed up, but I, I set up a, I called it a hope for the baby tree. And I set up a little bitty tree and I stuffed baby's breath in the branches and tied pink and blue ribbons on it. And I would pray every day that God would give us a child. And it took many more months, but eventually we did receive a child and then a second. And I still have a tree every Christmas that I set up. And just remember that um, our kids are in their late 30s now. Just remember that that desire of my heart was precious to God and that the children he did grant us are the ones that we were to parent and that we were to raise and we were to steward. Amen. Yeah, I think about so many different holidays that have that same theme that reveal the importance of just remembrance, but not even just a holiday, just the even practice of celebrating communion Hmm. is a a picture that, you know, Paul wrote in uh, First Corinthians for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and we need given thanks He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup and in the same way, says, this is the blood. This is sorrow, right? Like Mm -hmm. that night. Mm -hmm. And it's about to get even worse on the cross. And yet now when we take communion, we see it as this incredible picture of Mm -hmm. celebration. We're celebrating being one with the Lord. We're celebrating being the new community together. And we can see that. And if God can do that and take the worst moment in human history and turn that sorrow into celebration, then he can do that with our lives. And when we just trust in him to see that he hasn't forgotten, that he hasn't forsaken, but that the celebration is eventually going to come. And it's because of Jesus that we can celebrate despite living in complex times. Another reason to celebrate the life-changing impact of the gospel. Well, you've been listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and leading this time, Rasul Berry. Thanks for studying the story of Esther with us here on Discover the Word. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And as we wrap up another episode, I just want to take a moment to thank you for helping us make the life-changing resources like Discover the Word and the daily Our Daily Bread devotional videos that I mentioned earlier available to people all around the world. Our materials are used in over 150 different countries. And it's the voluntary giving of friends like you that make Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries possible. Because when you give, you're helping us make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. You can partner with us in this important mission by giving online at discovertheword.org. Click the Donate tab. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. I live in a Hasidic Jewish community, Hmm. very insular. They have mastered the art of walking by you and not bumping into you, but not looking at you at the same time. So it just feels like no point of connection. And I was actually in Israel 
for the first time and it was they were celebrating Purim. And so I kind of was like, well, maybe this I could do this to kind of give a gift to break the ice. So I never forget the first time I decided to get up enough courage to knock on this insular community, Hasidic Jewish family's door. Me with this dreadlocks black dude and being like, I don't know what's about to happen right now. I'm just trying my best to be a good neighbor. So, you know, I open up the door and um, the wife opens the door and they kind of like mostly speak another language. I think they have Russian ancestry. And I was like, happy Purim. <laughs> That's just all I need to do. <laughs> and she uh, she goes, my husband's not here. Come back. And I thought she was just shooing me away. So I was just kind of dejected. But I decided, she said, come back. So I come back later. It's like at night, I'm trying to get this thing done. This time a boy opens up the door. He's like eight. And I'm like, is your father home? And he says, Abba, Abba. And, you know, this old guy comes, white beard. And I say, happy Purim. And he looks kind of puzzled. And he extends his hand to shake my hand. And then I put my hand in his hand. And he pulls me in the house. And it's like, you're the man. You're done. And, and they're like, and he embraces me. And they end up, they're like, this guy. Because I had gone to the other neighbor's doors. And the word had gotten out that this random black guy was coming down, knocking on their door. So they end up giving me a bigger gift than I gave them. And it's been a annual tradition now. That's the one thing. And, and it was funny because last time I was a little bit late and they were like, oh, we, we were waiting for you. We knew you were coming. They already had something set up. And uh, so it's kind of just been cool to see this annual so tradition cool. uh, take place. Yeah. But I was I, I still never forget that first feeling of fear that I had of just like, I don't know what's about to go down. But now they you know, now we're cool. We see each other. We nod. So hmm. that's awesome. Yeah.